Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 52, Into the Breach, Part 1, Tietval and the Schwaben Redoubt. So we have finally arrived at July the 1st, 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and the most notorious day in Britain's military history. With the exception of November 11th, no other date has come to define the Great War more than this one. It is, without a doubt, the war's most controversial date, and has been the focus of countless studies and revisions throughout the years. Certainly, the public fascination with July the 1st is not without merit. It is best remembered for the appalling losses exacted on the British Army. In just one day, the British would suffer 57,540 casualties, of which... 19,240 were deaths. This was more than they had lost, or would lose, in the Crimean, Boer, and Korean Wars combined. When stacked against French and German losses, the absurdity of this number becomes more apparent. French casualties were just 1,590, while German losses numbered around 8,200, with more than a quarter being taken prisoner. Ever since, historians have grappled over what went wrong and for decades, it was fashionable to pin all the blame on Douglas Haig and Henry Rawlinson. After all, they were the ones who planned it, and their choice of seemingly antiquated methods resulted in thousands of young men being sent to their death. Images of British infantry advancing in long straight lines directly into German machine guns often come to mind. This simple explanation has come to encapsulate everything wrong with British generalship. Powerful figures such as Winston Churchill and David Lloyd George champion this hypothesis in their post-war memoirs. To this day, the image of Haig being the arch-donkey of the Western Front is difficult to break, and certainly for thousands of soldiers and their families, having a face to blame was one way of coming to terms with the losses. But as we've seen over the past several weeks, the Battle of the Somme was more complex than is commonly depicted. We learned that it was Joseph Joff, not Douglas Haig who chose to fight there. We also saw that the British army in 1916 was green and flat-footed. Since Britain had never fielded an army of that size before, everyone was technically an amateur. A few professional soldiers, like Haig and Rawlinson, occupied positions of power, but the exponential growth meant junior officers and NCOs were drawn from civilian ranks. Haig had done what he could to delay the offensive, and gave his army as much time as he could to prepare. But in the end, coalition demands trumped Haig's concerns. France was holding on for dear life, so Britain would have to attack before she was ready. Of course, these points might not be enough to satisfy Haig's most ardent critics, but if anything, they do show that Haig was put in a difficult spot. Had he refused to attack and France fell, then he would be remembered as the man who lost the Great War. In the end, attack was his only option. He had done what he could to prepare his army for battle, so it was up to the men on the ground to carry out the next phase. That next phase began at 7.30am on July the 1st, 1916. Now as I mentioned, the first day of the Somme stands out for good reason. It's easily the most argued about event of the First World War, resulting in hundreds, if not thousands of works written about the first day alone. Ironically, this also means that it has become one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood. Nearly every study I've come across spends entire chapters discussing the British failures, 
but few dedicate more than a few pages to the Anglo-French achievements in the South. There are two explanations for this imbalance. The first is that most histories of the Somme come from English historians, who naturally gravitate towards the British experience. If we are to think of the First World War as a conflict which tested the strength of empires, the Battle of the Somme was the acid test for Great Britain. For France and Germany, their test came in the form of Verdun, and although thousands of French and German soldiers who survived Verdun would later be killed at the Somme, Verdun's legacy remains a sinister presence in their collective memory. In the summer of 1916, Great Britain had yet to experience the war on a national scale, and the Somme would serve as a brutal introduction. The second reason for this imbalance is that the sheer loss of life begs for continual revision. 57,540 casualties is an astounding number, and every year there seems to be a new attempt to explain how such slaughter was allowed to happen. The problem is that our fascination with that one day has blinded us to what happened afterwards, and has not really helped our understanding of the campaign as a whole. Without excusing the carnage of the first day, which we will be spending a great deal of time talking about, the battle continued for another 140 days, and resulted in 1,053,000 total casualties before finally being called off on November the 18th. Naturally, This means there is a large gap in the narrative which remains to be filled. What happened after July the 1st? What happened in those 140 days? Certainly, the following months deserve equal treatment, especially since they are part of the same campaign which gave us that dreadful opening day. As we progress deeper into the campaign, we'll be shedding light on these oft-forgotten chapters, which will allow us to assess the whole campaign in greater detail. I plan to spend episodes 53, 54, and 55 on these later stages until events elsewhere demand our attention. For example, Brusilov's offensive and Verdun were still ongoing. Once the Somme gets underway, these three great battles were raging at the same time. Popular history would have us believe that the Somme was being fought in a vacuum, when it was really part of three major efforts against the Central Powers, with each campaign directly affecting the other. This will be a big undertaking, but one which I feel will be well worth it. Of course, to begin any fair discussion of the Somme, we need to start with July the 1st. To explore what went right and wrong on that day, we're going to approach it in much the same way we did with the Battle of Jutland. The next four episodes will be a straight retelling of the facts as they happened. We'll go around to the various Anglo-French sectors and see how that first day unfolded in each area individually. Our focus for this week will be to cover the opening bombardment and then shift our attention to the 10th Corps' attack on Tiepval village. Tiepval is arguably the Somme's most famous location. It remains a popular spot for battlefield tourists, largely due to the abundance of Commonwealth War cemeteries, but also because it was the chosen location for the Central Memorial. The Tiepval Memorial of the Missing contains the names of 73,000 Anglo-French troops who died in the fighting from July 1916 to February 1918. The impressive memorial can be seen throughout the former battlefield, making Tiepval a beacon for many who visit the area. Since we will be doing a similar tour of the Somme here in the podcast, the Battle of Tiepval on July the 1st is an excellent entry point. In the next episode, Part 2, we'll move our focus northward to discuss the diversionary attack at Gomcourt an 8th Corps assault between Serre and Beaumont-Hamel. In Part 3, 
will be in the center of the British advance at La Boiselle, before turning our attention south to the British and French efforts astride the river itself. That will be the focus of Part 4. Part 5 will be our assessment episode, where we'll close the curtain on July the 1st by tackling some of the lingering myths and questions. Just what went wrong for the British, and why did Haig not call off the attack when it was clear it was a failure? Although we'll be spending a great deal of time on July the 1st, we must always remember that the battle was not designed to be fought in one day. July the 1st was just the beginning, not the end. So, if you're interested in learning a lot about the Somme, and how it was fought over progressive stages, you're in the right place. As we've seen, the Allied buildup had continued throughout the spring and summer. Final dossiers were submitted, and by June 30th, preparations were complete. Henry Rawlinson's 4th Army had 15 divisions, 11 in the first line and 4 in reserve. Supporting 4th Army on their northern flank were 2 divisions from Allenby's 3rd Army, plus an additional 6 divisions, 3 infantry and 3 cavalry, from Herbert Goh's reserve army. In total, Rawlinson had 110,000 men at his disposal. In the French-held sectors, Fayol's 6th Army was of similar strength. Fayol had five divisions in the front line and nine in reserve. The Anglo-French armies numbered about 200,000 men in total. Opposing them was the German 2nd Army, commanded by Fritz von Bülow. Von Bülow had 150,000 troops under his command, spread among eight front line and three reserve divisions. This preponderance in manpower favored the Allies, but considering that nearly half of the British battalions were untested volunteers, this advantage was far from secure. Where the Allies had an unmistakable advantage was in firepower. For months, British factories had been pumping out shells and guns in greater number, with the French army supplying half the total arsenal. The checklist for the British artillery ran as follows. For the purposes of cutting wire and leveling dugouts, over 1,010 pieces of field artillery were assembled, the bulk of which were 18-pounders and 4.5-inch howitzers. This arsenal was further supplemented by 427 heavy guns. The heavies were given the job of knocking out the German batteries and railroads behind the line. Fourth Army's shopping list included 128 60-pounders and six massive 15-inch howitzers. French heavies consisted of 155 and 220mm cannons and the all-purpose 75mm field gun. Combined, the Anglo-French armies had 3,000 guns and heavy mortars. Von Bülow was backed by just 844. Beginning on June the 24th, these 3,000 guns would pound the German trenches day and night. Exhausted gunners with blood streaming from ruptured eardrums rammed home shell after shell with mechanical efficiency. Crimson tongues licked from their barrels as their payloads screamed overhead. The infantry could only stare with mouths agape at the firestorm being unleashed. Not a living soul or beast but countless puffs of smoke, from the white fleecy ball of field gun shrapnel to the dense greasy pall of heavy howitzer high explosive, wrote a captain of the 29th division at Beaumont Hamel. Although it looked like hell come to earth, the Allied bombardment was skillfully conducted. The plan was to deliver five days of ceaseless shelling. Guns were to fire in two-hour intervals, punctuated by a short cooling-off period in between. Each day was given a codename, and individual batteries were assigned specific tasks. 
June the 24th was U-Day. June the 25th, V-Day. The 26th, W-Day. And the 27th to 28th, X and Y-Day. Wire cutting would commence on U-Day the 24th and continue non-stop until Y-Day the 28th. This task fell to the field guns, who were given shrapnel shells to carry out the job. Since high-explosive shells remained in short supply, anti-battery work and high-explosive shelling would not join the cacophony until V-Day, the 25th. The heavy artillery would focus their fire on the rear areas, targeting German batteries, fortifications, and rail lines. To ensure that everything was going to plan, aerial spotters of the Royal Flying Corps, which was a precursor to the RAF, would conduct daily sorties over the battlefield, photographing and monitoring the effects from a safe distance. While on the ground, raiding parties would be sent across no man's land to inspect the damage up close. On the Somme, the artillery would not be firing blind. The proper mechanisms were in place to ensure it was effective. 12,000 tons of steel were fired against the German positions. Senior officers and enlisted privates shared in the optimism that surely no man or object would be left standing. As was to be expected, the carefully laid plans were disrupted by a change in weather. Throughout the five days, the battlefield was steeped in fog. Thunderstorms had rolled in on the evening of the 23rd, blanketing the valley with low cloud and heavy rain. For four out of five days, the RFC was grounded, meaning there was no way of gauging the effects of the heavy shelling. So, on June the 28th, Y-Day, Hagen Rawlinson agreed to extend the bombardment for two days. June 29th and 30th became Y-1 and Y-2 days. This meant, by coincidence rather than design, that the attack would be launched on July the 1st, the date agreed to by Joffe and Hag on May the 23rd. Despite nearly giving their staff officers an aneurysm with this sudden change of plan, the decision to prolong the shelling paid off. The weather soon cleared, and the RFC was able to take to the sky. Making their rounds, they reported large fires at supply dumps near Montauban and Pozier Ridge, and photographs appeared to show wide gaps in the German wire. On the ground, the raids into no man's land were met with mixed success. There were hints that the German defenses were still active. The crackle of machine guns could be heard through the mist, and barrages were put down in no man's land. Despite this, there was still room for optimism. German prisoners had told their captors of the terror they had experienced. The week-long shelling, in which over 1,738,000 rounds were fired, had subjected the Germans to a psychological torture, the likes of which they had never experienced. Deep in their dugouts, all the Germans could do was sit and hope for the best. The ear-splitting roars were an all-out attack on the senses. Some were driven mad. One private had to be knocked unconscious with a shovel to prevent him from running into the open. For three days, no food or water made its way to the front, and sleep was next to impossible. The dugout shook and trembled with each impact. The buttresses bent and creaked. The men were concussed, exhausted, and terrified. But they were alive. Many of their friends had been killed, squashed by collapsed dugouts or vaporized by whirling steel. Hardening themselves for the coming test, they wanted nothing more than the hit back against their tormentors. In what might well have been his last letter home, Unter-Officer, or Corporal, Friedrich Eichel of the Bavarian Reserves, recalls those harrowing moments, which, in my opinion, is one of the most chilling passages I've ever come across. 
Quote, The torture and the fatigue, not to mention the strain on the nerves, was indescribable. There was just one single heartfelt prayer on our lips. O oh God, free us from this ordeal. Give us release through battle. Grant us victory. Lord God, just let them come. And this determination increased with the fall of each shell. You made a good job of it, you British. Seven days and nights, you rapped and hammered on our door. Now your reception was going to match your turbulent longing to enter. End quote. Throughout the bombardment, British infantry continued to fan out from Albert, shuffling into packed trenches in pitch blackness. Platoon sergeants barked orders at their men, only to be cut off by the shriek of passing shells. The horizon was awash in a magnificent white glow. Muzzle flashes and high arcs of light into the air was lashed against the night sky. Hag and Rawlinson zipped around for last-minute preparations, visiting the corps commanders who were in the final stages of readying themselves. Battalion commanders reviewed their troops and spoke to them of the coming battle. The night of June 30th, Rawlinson issued an army-wide statement to the troops. That statement read, quote, In wishing all ranks good luck, the army commander desires to impress on all infantry units the supreme importance of helping one another and holding on tight to every yard of ground gained. The accurate and sustained fire of the artillery during the bombardment should greatly assist the task of the infantry. End quote. Certainly, this was no Eisenhower's Great Crusade speech of June 1944. It reflects the rigid, rather impersonal command structure of the First World War British Army. It reads like a final order rather than a motivating tool, so it's pretty unremarkable given the momentous task that lay ahead. But the reason I bring it up is not to criticize Rawlinson's literary skills. For the Germans, the week-long bombardment was a sure sign of attack. They knew it was coming, but as to the exact date, they had no idea. In the meantime, all they could do was wait and prepare to man their posts as soon as the shelling lifted. Rawlinson's statement was supposed to be read orally. Only a few physical copies were made, which were passed out to regimental and battalion commanders, who would then relay it to their staff. But somewhere along the line, someone didn't get the memo. In the interest of time, a communications officer in the 34th Division, part of 3 Corps at La Boiselle, opted to send it through wireless instead. This gross display of incompetence cost the British their final advantage. German listeners opposite La Boiselle immediately picked up the message and rebroadcast it throughout 2nd Army. This told them that the British would attack the following morning, July the 1st. But more importantly, it also told them that a full-strength army would be involved. Although the Battle of the Somme had been an open secret for some time, this unfortunate mishap deprived the British of their last chance at meaningful surprise. By 6.30am on July the 1st, the infantry had been sorted out and the attack was ready to go ahead. Over 50,000 dry-mouthed Anglo-French troops waited anxiously for the whistle. These men would be going in with the first wave, and zero hour was just 60 minutes away. Some sat in the dugouts or leaned against the trench wall, while others took up positions in no man's land. To distract themselves, many wrote letters to loved ones back home, or performed last-minute equipment checks. Those who braved a quick glimpse at the horizon bore witness to the firestorm engulfing the German positions. The bombardment had risen to a terrific crescendo, as heavy mortars were added to the chorus. For the final hour, 
over 3,000 Allied guns fired in rapid succession, blanketing the German positions with a wall of steel and thunder. Then, at 7.20 a.m., the guns fell silent, and calm settled on the battlefield. Opposite Beaumont Hamel, Tiepval, and La Voiselle, German machine gunners fired warning shots over the British trenches. Forward observers could see the distinctive outline of German helmets scurrying back and forth. Somehow, pockets of German defenders had survived. Then, at 7.25, the silence was again shattered by a series of tremendous explosions behind the German positions. The underground mines had been detonated. Allied engineers had spent months laying these mines, in the hopes of punching a hole through weakened sections of the German line. A total of 19 mines had been dug, the key ones being at Beaumont Hamel and Freecore, each containing an average of 18,000 kilograms of aminol, a mixture of nitrates, coarse aluminum, TNT, and charcoal, which explodes at a rate of 4,400 meters per second. The largest of these mines, codenamed Lochnagar Mine near La Boiselle, contained 27,200 kilograms of explosives, which threw clumps of earth 4,000 meters into the air upon detonation. There are reports suggesting that the concussive wave from these blasts was felt in downtown London. The detonation of Lochnagar Mine was witnessed by two RFC pilots, who were taken off earlier that morning to help monitor the infantry advance. The testimony of one pilot, 2nd Lieutenant Cecil Lewis, is perhaps the most visual description of the Lochnagar explosion. Quote, At Boiselle, the earth heaved and flashed. A tremendous and magnificent column rose up into the sky. There was an ear-splitting roar, drowning all the guns, flinging the machine sideways in the repercussing air. The earthly column rose, higher and higher to almost 4,000 feet. There it hung, or seemed to hang, for a moment in the air, like a silhouette of some great cypress tree, then fell away in a winding cone of dust and debris. End quote. Then, at 7.30 a.m., officers blew their whistles, and men began to clamor out of the trenches. Weighed down by 30 kilograms of equipment, they had to be pushed and prodded up the ladder. Astride the River Somme, 55,000 Allied troops were advancing on the German position. On the other side of no man's land, the discipline of the German army was on full display. After seven horrific days, they summoned the courage to leave their dugouts and meet the Allied attack. Red-eyed and covered in the blood of their fallen comrades, they manned their machine guns. They saw lines of brown khaki and smooth steel helmets moving toward them, and when the order was given, they opened up with a terrific fire. The events of July the 1st can be easily told. Waves of British infantry ran up against uncut wire and were scythed down by German machine guns. North of the river, the diversionary attack at Gumcor had failed, and the carnage spread throughout the British line. Entire battalions melted away in the maelstrom. Those who made it across no man's land were forced to bunch up to pass through the thin gaps in the wire, making them ideal targets for German gunners. At Beaumont Hamel, 758 men and 22 officers of the Newfoundlanders Regiment went into battle, and within 30 minutes, all their officers were dead, leaving only 68 survivors. At La Boiselle, the 34th Division suffered 6,000 casualties without setting foot in a German trench. 
North of the Roman road, which connects Alberta Bapalm, the attack fell into disarray. Communication trenches were soon congested with dead and wounded, forcing support battalions to advance across open ground. Thousands of men were killed before making it to their own front line. German machine guns glowed red, and wave after wave fell in a hail of bullets. At the north end of the British front, the attack was disintegrating into chaos. This contrasted mightily to events in the south. The 13th and 15th Corps had secured their objectives, and on their right, Fayol's 6th Army had crossed no man's land, captured 4,000 German POWs, and was consolidating their new positions. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, we're going to talk about the day's events by looking at each sector individually. Now is not the time to analyze why these southern attacks fared much better. For today, we'll remain planted in the north, and begin our discussion of July the 1st by looking at 10th Corps' assault on Tiefval Village. That is where we'll turn our attention for the remainder of the episode. The assault on Tiefval Village was carried out by two divisions. The 36th Ulster Division, made up of volunteers from Northern Ireland, and the 32nd Division. Both these divisions were formed as part of Kitchener's new army. They were new to the area and had yet to be tested in battle although some of the Ulstermen had military experience through local volunteer forces. Their objective for July the 1st was to attack the Tietvel sector of the German line. I didn't have time to do a map this week, but if you use the one from last day, you'll see that Tietvel is located just south of the Anker, shouldered right up against the German line. Tietvel's location, which was atop a hill overlooking the British line, made it a strategic target, and the Germans understood its value for an attacking army. So to defend the village, the Germans erected two enormous strong points on either side. These strong points were known as the Schwaben and Leipzig Redoubts. These complexes were formidable obstacles. Not only were they heavily armed and fortified, they were set back from the forward line on a declining slope, which was protected by the first lines of German trenches. This made them difficult targets for artillery, so it fell to the infantry to get the job done. To do this, the infantry would need to run the gauntlet, fight their way up the slope, and get past the elevated defenses. Once that was done, they would have to secure the first German trench before pressing on to the redoubts. This was the most dangerous part of the attack. Not only would they be exposed to enfilading fire from the village, they would also be silhouetted against the horizon as they descended downwards. Speed and ferocity was the key here the British could not risk becoming snagged anywhere. The Tiepvel battlefield can be divided into three sectors, Tiepvel North, Central, and South. Tiepvel North covered the area in and around the Schwaben Redoubt. Tiepvel Central encompassed the village, while the southern sector covered the area near the Leipzig Redoubt. Two brigades, the 108th and 109th, would make the assault on Schwaben with three battalions of the 107th waiting in support. Frontal attacks on Tiepval would be carried out by regiments of the Lancashire and Northumberland Fusiliers. On the far right flank, the 32nd Division would attack Leipzig Redoubt. 32nd's objectives were to neutralize the Redoubt, in addition to knocking out the fortified defenses south of the village. Of particular significance was the large chateau which the Germans had turned into a fortress. This chateau also doubled as a spotting post for German artillery. 
Although it was heavily shelled, the Germans still occupied the cellars, and could set up concealed machine gun posts in the rubble. Defending against the attack was the German 26th Reserve Division, which had occupied the same sector since 1914. They knew the terrain well, and had a detailed battle plan which fit their defensive network. Allied intelligence regarded the 26th Reserve as a first-class division. The assault on Tietval began at 7.30 a.m. Fifteen minutes before, some units had moved from their trenches and taken up scratch positions in no man's land. Once the barrage lifted, they began their advance. What unfolded was a day of false dawns and missed opportunities. In the early goings, though, things went well enough. First wave infantry were able to cross no man's land and establish a foothold at the base of the plateau. Defenses at the Schwaben Redoubt had been paralyzed by the opening bombardment. Within five minutes, the northern brigades had already begun clearing out the first-line trenches, while supporting battalions had begun to make their way forward. In the south, the 32nd Division had grabbed hold of the German line, occupying a thin strip opposite the Leipzig Redoubt. In the central sector, frontal attacks by the Lancashire and Northumberland Fusiliers, who had advanced under the cover of Tiepfel Wood, had caught the Germans in the village by surprise. For a few minutes, it looked as though the British might score a major victory. Within minutes of these initial gains, things began to slow down, and by 7.45am, the situation had taken a turn for the worse. The Germans had shaken out the cobwebs, and were hitting back with ferocious counterfire. For the British, the timing could not have been worse. To ensure momentum was carried forward, the British attack plan kept to a schedule. Support battalions did not have to wait for orders because they were locked in to attack at designated times. For example, if the first wave went in at 7.30, the second and third waves would go in at 7.45, 8, 8.15, and so on. This was done in case forward units got stuck or unable to communicate with the rear. So instead of waiting for a flare or rocket to signal these secondary attacks, everyone was going in on a schedule. This was a sensible way of overcoming the communication pitfalls which had doomed operations in the past. Synchronization is, of course, important for any military operation. The problem was that it completely backfired. German defenses were beginning to hit back just as the support waves were climbing over the top, and it did not take long before the attack devolved into a massacre. In the south, British infantry were being cut down in heaps. The Scottish Border Regiment, attacking in support of the 32nd Division opposite Leipzig, lost 550 men in fewer than five minutes of action. Communication trenches were soon clogged with the dead and dying. This blocked the passage for the next wave, causing gridlock throughout the British trenches. Second wave infantry found their only way forward was to climb out of the trenches, where there were silhouetted targets for German machine gunners. A literal conveyor belt was being formed. Units coming up from the rear were decimated before they even reached the British front line. Despite this, some fragmented units survived the carnage and had linked up with the 32nd, the Dorsetshire Regiment being one such unit. Prior to battle, they had 600 men. Once they reached the British front line, they were down to 66. Only 25 made it to the German side of no man's land. These gut-churning losses are indicative of why the attack failed. 
Pockets of men were able to make it to the front, but they were not in sufficient numbers to push the advance further. For the remainder of the day, the 32nd Division would remain pinned down opposite the Leipzig Redoubt. Similarly, the attacks in Tiepfel Center had been stalled in the face of heavy fire coming from the village. The Fusiliers were being chewed to bits, and support battalions were faring no better. There are witness testimonies describing how the Germans stood on the parapet, daring the British to come closer. One German soldier of the 99th Regiment recalled the scene. Quote, the British believed it would just be a question of harvesting the fruits of their bombardment and wiping out or taking prisoner such troops as had survived. They were sorely deceived. Before long, the leaderless masses of the British began to come to a halt. Their hesitations were converted into consternation, and finally into panic-stricken flight. End quote. But while events in the south were a godforsaken mess, the attack in Tietveld North continued to offer a degree of hope. There, the attack was faring much better. The assault in the northern sector, aka the Schwaben Redoubt, was being carried out by the 108th and 109th Brigades of the 36th Ulster Division. Like elsewhere, their advance began well. The first wave had gotten across no man's land and into the first line of trenches. But as the defenders reorganized themselves, they were able to hold up the supporting waves. Those advancing in the second attack found themselves marching into a hailstorm of bullets. The 108th and 109th Brigades had attacked with eight battalions. The 108th was comprised of the 9th, 11th, 12th, and 13th Royal Irish Rifles. Likewise, the 109th Brigade was made up of the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 14th Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers. Marching with the 10th Inniskilling Fusiliers was Private David Fulton, my great-grandfather. The 36th Ulsters were positioned on either side of the Ankur River, just north of Tiepfel Wood. Its initial advance had been good. Only two battalions, the 9th and 12th Irish Rifles, at the center of the advance, were met with heavy counterfire, while the rest have been able to take advantage of the lull and press on with speed. The relative success of the Ulsterman's assault was a combination of two things, the weather and better terrain. July the 1st was a clear summer day, and after four days of continual rain, a thick mist had risen off the Anker. This shielded their approach until they were within a dozen meters of the German line. They were also advancing across ground that offered better protection. The 109th Brigade had navigated through the Maelstrom, crisscrossing through ditches, sunken roads, and shell craters. The 9th and 12th Irish Rifles, in the face of heavy fire, managed to take shelter in a ravine. The men made themselves as flat as they could, and as bullets whizzed around them, they could look out over the battlefield and see the carnage unfolding in the south. Bodies lay strewn about in heaps. A few silhouettes had made it to their feet, but were cut down within seconds. With the center of the advance stalling, the remaining Inniskilling Fusiliers had penetrated the German flank, and began clearing out the first trench system. This was a grisly task. Using grenades, bayonet, and rifle butt, the dugouts were eventually cleared, and by 8.35am, the 109th had penetrated the redoubt's outer defenses. Meanwhile, the Irish rifles were still pinned down in the center. Like in the south, the conveyor belt continued to push reinforcements forward. The 107th Brigade had gone into battle. 
Taking heavy casualties, some units managed to link up with the besieged 108th, but this did little to improve the situation. Their shelter in the ravine was only temporary. The Germans had seen their approach, and were no doubt radioing their artillery with the coordinates. They knew they had to move or risk being blown to bits. But, as luck would have it, it was the British guns which decided their future. Somewhere, a British gunner must have been putting in some extra target practice, because just before 9 o'clock, a barrage rained down from the heavens and landed a bullseye on the German line. Not wanting to waste the opportunity, the surviving Irish extracted themselves, sprinted across no man's land, and threw themselves into the German trench. There, they reorganized and began to fight their way forward. For the next hour and a half, the Ulstermen would bomb, bayonet, and plunge their way through the German trenches. By 10 a.m., the Schwaben Redoubt was in British hands, and some units were ready to press on. The 11th Irish Rifles, along with the 9th and 10th Inniskilling Fusiliers, had made the furthest gains, getting beyond the Schwaben Redoubt and inching towards the German second line. A breakthrough was in the making. Casualties had been heavy, which weakened the hitting power of the regiments. But momentum remained in their favor. However, a combination of two factors would see their hopes dashed. The first relates to British artillery. Because Rawlinson pursued his bite-and-hold approach, the British bombardment would resume at 10 a.m. against the German second line. Unfortunately, the barrage was on a time schedule, and the Ulstermen had no way of communicating with the batteries. Right on schedule, British shells began to fall on the second line of trenches, forcing the Ulsters, who were halfway between the two lines, to delay their assault. They had to wait for the barrage to lift, which was expected to last 25 minutes. Trouble was, they were stuck in no man's land behind the German line. Some diehards held their ground, while others took shelter in the captured dugouts. The Ulsters were trapped, but with no other option, began to consolidate their position. As they did, they were interrupted by local counterattacks, and just as the British shelling lifted, the German guns responded with deafening counterfire. This 25-minute window was enough for the Germans to regain the initiative. With the British pinned against their own barrage, there was a flurry of activity on both sides of the front. The Germans were beginning to claw their way back, while the British scrambled to piece together a coherent picture. This was the second factor leading to the collapse. And to explore it in more detail, we need to step back from the front line and examine the command decisions of the senior officers, namely the Corps Commander, Thomas Moreland. Thomas Moreland, the 51-year-old commander of 10th Corps, had been watching the battle unfold from his observation post behind the line. Through his binoculars, all he could see was a dance of smoke and muzzle flash, making it impossible to differentiate between units. All he had to go on was the steady progression of reports which buzzed through his wireless machine. Most of these reports were an hour old by the time they arrived, and it would take another hour, at least, for Moreland's response to make its way back. For much of the morning, Moreland could do little to influence the fighting. He had one division, the 49th waiting in reserve, but would not send them in until a clearer picture was formed. At 10.30am, that picture began to take shape. Attacks in Teepval Central and South remained stalled under heavy resistance. Aerial reports also confirmed that the Ulsters were preparing to move beyond the Schwaben Redoubt. 
Visual proof of their success came in the form of 500 German POWs, who were traumatized and near hysterics by the shock of the advance. Instead of doing the logical thing, which would have been to send the 49th Division in support of the Ulsters, Morlin decided to play it safe. He stalled, and for three hours made no decision as to where to send his reserves. In the meantime, he ordered two battalions to the south, with hopes of pushing the stalled 32nd Division past the Leipzig Redoubt and encircling Tiepfel. The important thing to remember here is the time lapse. Morland ordered the renewed attack on Leipzig at 11am, but with the chaos in the British trenches, the assigned battalions did not carry out the assault until 1.30 that afternoon. When the attack inevitably failed, Morland did not receive confirmation until 3 o'clock. This meant that the Ulstermen had been isolated for four hours with no reinforcements, all the while under siege by German counterattacks. By 4.30 that afternoon, the German response was pitched, and their counter-efforts were chipping away at the British holdings. In response to this, Moreland split the remaining 49th Brigades. Half were sent northwards, and the other half south. But by this point, it was too late. Having been marooned in the German trenches for much of the afternoon, the remaining Ulsters were being pushed back. The Ulstermen were dehydrated, exhausted, and low on ammunition. Organized counterattacks were hitting with greater ferocity. German artillery, notably the 15cm heavy howitzers, were raining shells around the Irish positions. For the Ulsters, the situation was dire. Most of their officers were dead, so command passed into the hands of corporals and senior privates. When one rifleman reported he was out of ammunition, his sergeant retorted, Why you dumb bastard, make military noises. It took until 7.30 that evening for Moreland to receive word that the 36th Division was being forced to withdraw. In one last attempt to salvage the situation, he immediately dispatched a new set of orders to the 49th, ordering all brigades to reroute themselves northwards in support of the 36th. This was just wishful thinking. There was no way the orders would have reached the battalions in time, and even if they did, the time it would have taken to reorganize everything would have made it a new point. Furthermore, the Germans had swiveled their defenses towards the 36th. Once it was clear that the attacks in the center and south had been contained, the Germans could direct more fire against the Ulster's exposed flank. The 36th was now taking fire from two sides, all while German artillery continued to pound no man's land. The 36th Division, which had made such impressive gains in the early hours, was now being sealed off by a curtain of high explosive. The brave reinforcements who attempted to reach them were decimated by flanking fire. The Ulsters had reached the end of their endurance. They had entrenched themselves as best they could, and put up a fierce resistance. But with no reinforcements on the way, they were forced to give up the ghost. For the remainder of the day, the surviving Ulsters fought a rearguard action, and by 10pm were back in the first German line, which they had captured some 12 hours earlier. With darkness approaching, they began filtering back to the British front. Dozens more became casualties in the nocturnal retreat. The Germans were not going to let them leave peacefully. As they sprinted across no man's land, they descended into the land of the dead. The howls of wounded men could be heard everywhere, but there was no time to stop. Medical evacuations would have to wait. Then a flare shot up into the night sky, 
illuminating the battlefield in a pale glow. German machine gunners opened fire, and dozens of men buckled to the ground. Those were the last shots fired in this sector on July the 1st. At the time, it was impossible to know how many men had been lost. But we know now that 5,482 Ulsters had been killed or wounded for no gain. Among the wounded was my great-grandfather, David Fulton. At some point during the fighting, he caught a piece of shrapnel to the hip and was helped back to the British line the following morning. He was processed to the casualty clearing station on July the 2nd. His wound was judged severe enough to keep him from active duty. The good news is that it did not prevent him from enjoying a productive life. He later relocated to Canada, where he died in 1996 at the age of 102. Whatever gains were made by the 36th Ulster Division, the attack on Teepval was a failure. Only bulletproof soldiers could have taken Teepval on this day, remarked the British official historian. On the morning of July the 2nd, the lines had been reset to the way they were the previous day. Schwaben Redoubt, Leipzig Redoubt, and Teepval Village remained in German hands. The temporary gains of the Ulsters were completely wiped out. Ironically, the limited gains of the 32nd, which had been unable to advance since 8am that morning, proved to be lasting. There, engineers had begun consolidating the holdings, which were soon transformed into permanent fixtures. The 32nd Division suffered some 4,600 casualties for this small prize, while German losses in the three sectors numbered just over 1,000 men. Now, I wish I could say things would improve from here on out but unfortunately, that wouldn't be true. Next week, we're going to continue our exploration of July the 1st by moving our attention northwards. In the next episode, we'll look at what transpired north of the Ankar by examining the two attacks that occurred there, the 3rd Army diversion at Gomkor and the 8th Corps' efforts between Serre and Beaumont Hamel. What unfolded in these sectors is what set the tone for future perceptions. It was, for lack of a better term, a slaughter. The futility of the attack is best exemplified by what happened to the 1st Newfoundlanders Regiment, which would take 91% casualties without setting foot in a German trench. For the small colony, whose population at the time was just 241,000, these losses were unfathomable. If the attack on Teepval was a failure, then what happened at Beaumont-Hamel was nothing short of a national tragedy. Alright, that's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, there are a couple of ways to get involved. You can make a one-time donation through the homepage, which goes to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a five-star review. iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been part one of episode 52 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you again shortly.